from having seen sun gazers on the ground and interacting with school children and sort of people that would collect them, etc. Conservation can only begin when somebody's got a full stomach. You cannot try and conserve a species while the people in the immediate area are starving. Another one fundamental aspect of the sun gazer's life cycle is the fact that it lives in the burrow, uh, which is actually one of its more common names called old folk. And it basically translates to old folk or old person as it sits at the entrance of its burrow. Uh, and again, it's rumoured that J.R. Tolkien uh, took his inspiration for Smog the Dragon from the Sungazer, hence the Latin name Smog Giganteus. Um, so as I say, the data loggers were strategically placed, uh, one above ground and one at the terminus of the burrow. And as I say, they collect temperature and humidity data every four hours for a full calendar year. Welcome to this week's episode of the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin, and this is episode number 97. Today I'm speaking with Fraser Gilchrist, who is a longtime reptile keeper out of Scotland. Fraser currently works with five main species, Angolan, Royal, and Sumatran pythons, as well as Egyptian tortoises and wide-mouthed agamas. So in this episode, Fraser walks us through the breeding projects that he has with each of those five species, and we discuss his general keeping philosophy, but we spend most of the time discussing Fraser's conservation projects. Fraser is the administrator of the stud books for both the armadillo lizard as well as the sun gazer lizard, and that is all done through the European Stud Book Foundation. So we discuss what that entails. And we also discuss the project Fraser initiated called Save Our Sun Gazers. This was aimed at helping this species thrive where they are currently in their native location in South Africa. So it involved going to South Africa, collecting a bunch of data, learning as much about them as, as they can, understanding how to conserve the species in situ in their native habitat, but then also collecting data so we can figure out how to crack the nut of breeding these animals in captivity. Because to date, really, sun gazers have not successfully been bred in captivity. There's a few maybe examples that it has happened, but it's certainly not having consistently. And so the project that Fraser had started was aimed at collecting climate data in hopes of eventually having enough information to have us be able to captively breed them successfully. So that's a very fascinating project and Fraser kind of walks us through the whole thing and, and we dig into why it's so difficult to breed sun gazers in captivity and as well as whether or not they should even be kept in captivity, which is sort of a fascinating part of this conversation as well. We wrap up the conversation with the work that Fraser does with the Scottish government. So Fraser assists the Scottish government in coming up with welfare standards as well as regulations when it comes to the reptile trade. Now, if you're a reptile keeper, which I'm sure you are, you know that regulations are constantly coming down the pipe. So the last 10 or 12 minutes of this podcast really gets into how we can be proactive, how we can approach government officials and actually help them craft those rules so they're fair for us, but then also dealing with the trafficking issues and all the things that the government actually wants to deal with. A lot of times they don't actually want to step on our toes you know, most times they don't want to step on our toes too aggressively, but they just don't have the knowledge base to write rules that make sense. And that's where we come in as keepers. So you may be very motivated after this episode to do that. If you have a community where you think you could contact some officials, this episode should give you a few of the tools to or, or the motivation to get out there and do that. So before we jump into the episode, let's do our housekeeping real quick. If you are looking for the show notes for this episode, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. There you'll have the Animals at Home podcast header. Click that and then you'll find the show notes for this episode. Frazier did send me quite a few photos for this episode. So if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see them flash on the screen. If you are listening to this in your car or you're working out, or you're going for a walk, whatever it is, make sure you go to the show notes afterwards. 
the, the pictures are just kind of floating in the background of the video, so you're not going to miss anything by not seeing them. But head to the show notes after and you can flip through them. Or maybe while you're listening to it, you can flip through them as well. But they are at animalsathomenetwork.com. Thank you very much to CustomReptileHabitats.com for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. There are affiliate links in both the YouTube description and the show notes. If you do make a purchase, a small commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you. And of course, that helps me produce the show. And finally, if you're looking for a more in-depth experience with the podcast, make sure you head to patreon.com slash animals at home. There you'll find a community of other listeners and you'll have early access to each episode as well as the opportunity to submit questions to upcoming guests. And sometimes we've, been, we've only done one so far, but we plan on doing it at least every four to six weeks, having a Zoom meeting where everybody can come in and we can all chat with each other. And even sometimes we'll have a guest of the podcast come in there as well. So if you want to have a more in-depth experience that way, make sure you head to patreon.com slash animals at home. And other than that, let's jump into this conversation with Fraser. Enjoy. Fraser, welcome to the show. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, you're welcome, Dylan. Thanks for asking me. I'm very excited. I know I love talking to keepers who have been in this for a long time just because the wealth of knowledge is, uh, we probably can't fit it into a single episode. So we'll do our best today to see how much we can get into. And like you said earlier, it's actually International Snake Day, which is fantastic. So this works out well. Although for the listeners, it won't be Snake Day, but for us, it is, which is great. <laughs> So why don't we rewind the clock a little bit? Let, let us know kind of how you got into keeping reptiles in the first place. Um, probably like many other people, to be honest, um, I fell in love with dinosaurs, um, loved the sort of T-Rex and Stegosaurus, etc. cetera. Um, and obviously when I asked my mom and dad if I could keep a, a T-Rex, obviously the answer was no. Um, so the next best thing was obviously uh, a, a reptile. So that was how I kind of got into uh, keeping reptiles. Um, and it kind of snowballed or become an addiction. I don't know what, whatever way you want to kind of call it ever since then, really. What did you initially start keeping when you first started keeping reptiles? Um, my first ever foray into reptile keeping was actually uh, a radio terrapin. Uh, I think you guys call them sliders over there. Yeah. Um, my gran had actually purchased a tiny little uh, terrapin, literally everything you tell everybody not to do. Um, purchased myself, my two sisters and my three cousins, um, little terrapins each. And I was the only one actually uh, continued with the, with the fascination and uh, continued keeping reptiles. Yeah, it's funny. In those early days, little turtles were like the throwaway pet. Like you would just go buy them for cheap and yeah. then give them as like a kind of like a goldfish type thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, obviously things have kind of moved on now. Um, there's more awareness, etc. Um, but certainly, yeah, back in the day, I mean, this is going back 30 odd years now. Um, back in the day, there wasn't the sort of knowledge and um, social media aspect of it uh, as there is today, obviously. Um, so, yeah, I, say, I think, unfortunately, a lot of the terrapins, thankfully, I, my uncle actually had a pet shop at the time. So he was able to sort of help in terms of um, provide sort of UV stuff and things like that, mm-hmm. albeit kind of quite basic Um Back in the day, I'd say it was uh, all, all kind of sort of household light bulbs, etc., and sort of uh, fish tank heaters and things like that that we used. Um, but yeah, no, we, we actually managed to keep, uh, I think about five of them actually alive for a wow. good few years to the point, point that actually they were a good sort of dinner plate sized and we actually had to give them away to, a, uh, it was like a butterfly centre and they had a big sort of glass house type thing. Um, I'm sure they probably are still alive, to be honest yeah. now. Um, but yeah, no, we, we kind of realised the error of our ways. Um, and as obviously nowadays, you, you wouldn't really recommend someone buys a little 
tiny little terrapin um, without knowing fully what they're getting into. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, so how? When did your hobby sort of start expanding? Obviously, you started with the turtles, and then what did you start getting into keeping? Because you, you've grown to, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. So how did yeah. how did that start to escalate? It actually started um, when I went to high school. Um, well, probably actually before then, I got a, a garter snake, a checker garter snake. Um, but I'd only really kept that just as a pet. Never really had any intention of breeding at all. And then when I went to high school, my maths teacher, um, his son had some corn snakes and he was going off to university and he knew that I kept uh, a reptile and asked if I wanted to, to rehome his uh, three corn snakes and great, one grey rat snake. Um, and of course, I said yes. Um, and all the textbooks that I read at that point said that in order to uh, reproduce corn snakes, you'd have to remate them. Obviously, I woke up one day to discover, I think it was about 15 or 20 pearly white eggs, and obviously discovered that you didn't actually have to uh, hibernate them in order to uh, reproduce them. Uh, so that was kind of my first foray into breeding. And as they just really quickly snowballed after that, it got to the stage where I would ask my parents whether I could add another animal to the collection um, and they eventually just got to the stage of, look, as long as you're keeping them properly, just do what you want type thing. Um, it was always better to ask for forgiveness than ask, ask for permission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear that. And as long as you're doing <laughs> things properly, I don't see why not. And, yeah, and absolutely. So, so maybe you could give people just a little bit of an overview of what you keep now. Like, How does your collection look these days? Uh, at the moment, I'm concentrating on five different species. Um, I try to do each species well um and by that i mean have multiple males multiple females um and kind of concentrate on as i say diverse genetics uh, so the five species i currently keep are angolan pythons uh, sumatran pythons uh, a couple of royal pythons just to kind of dabble about with uh, i've also got the egyptian tortoises as you can see in the background and i also have some wide mouth agamas um, I've got two male and four female Angolan pythons, two male and two female Sumatran pythons, I say four or five male royals and a couple of females. Um, Egyptian tortoise-wise, I've got two males and four females, uh, five hatchlings and 17 eggs in the incubator at the moment. And a gamma-wise, I've got three males and nine females. So I'd say I try and actually keep multiple animals and as they try and do them as best as I can, to be honest. Uh, I used to, when I was growing up, had one of this, one of that, mm -hmm. two males of this, no, no females. And it got to the stage where it was so disjointed and there was no real direction or purpose to the collection. Um, I really hate using that word collection, but really I wish there was some other term or phrase to actually uh, use. I suppose pets is maybe the, the best way to use it. I mean, uh, I'm sure your viewers will understand that collections not always, it dreams up this connotation where it's like stamp collecting or mm -hmm. trading cards collecting, but I, I don't really think of any other better way to describe them. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I was just having this conversation with my friend Liam from the Reptiles and Research Channel, and he suggested the word group because if you had a bunch of dogs, you wouldn't call them a collection of dogs. You'd call them a group oh, of dogs or a group of cats. So maybe we just start using the word group. So I, I find that interesting because I think that that 
process of going into the hobby and starting to, you know, buy things that you like and having single species or single specimens of each, each species is a very common thing that people do. Was there something specific that sent you to, to make you realize, okay, I want to have a more purpose here. I want to have a collection that means something to me and I'm going to re- refine that. So how, how did you get to that? Two things, really. Um, first thing, I find it's actually easier to keep uh, multiple individuals of the same species uh, obviously, in terms of enclosure, um, environmental conditions, etc., um, but also more from a, a, a kind of conservation type aspect. Um, I've always been a huge advocate of keeping uh, less common, endangered um, animals, and as I say, that was really kind of my my reason for concentrating on certain species. I mean, in the past, I've kept uh, sort of dumbrils boas and Madagascan ground boas and things. Um, standings day geckos as well as part of a, a captive breeding effort with that uh, and also Jamaican boas as well so my, I want to be a bit I'm never going to be a, a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon or anything like that but I do seem to have a bit of a Midas touch when it comes to breeding animals that other people might struggle with um, and I kind of attribute that to just letting them get, get on with it uh, to be honest yeah, and we'll we'll get into some of those species in more detail in a little bit. But I know there's a, a few topics that I wanted to discuss before we get in there. And the first thing was you had mentioned to me before we started recording uh, through email that you use a term called optimum neglect. And I'm <laughs> curious if you can explain that and un- unpack that for us. What do you mean by optimum neglect? Really just as it says in the tin, uh, I'm a firm believer that if you set the animals up correctly right from the start of keeping them, then... That, that's it really, that, that is fundamentally setting them up correctly is the most important aspect of animal keeping and really they'll do the rest themselves. Um, I mean, when it comes to breeding, for example, a lot of people would say, well, how did you manage to get your animals to breed? And the simple answer is, all I do is feed them. They do, they do the rest themselves. Um, they have been doing it for millions of years unaided by humans. Uh, so there's no, it's not difficult to breed so long as you get the fundamentals correct. Um, and I think by getting the fundamentals correct, you avoid issues further down the line. Yeah, that's interesting. It's almost, I think humans tend to try to do too much, right? We try to put our hands in the pot just too too aggressively. And, you know, we're trying to get these animals to breed. So we're cross, you know, doing all these different algorithms, figuring out temperatures and whatnot. And really at the end of the day, it probably just comes down to making sure you're giving them an environment that's replicating their natural history and then just letting the animal do what they do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people get too optimal neglect for me also means things like not overly han- handling them, um, not being too uh, critical when it comes to feeding. So for example, some of my snakes rather than being regimented about feeding them at five o'clock on a Saturday evening, every single week, uh, I'll maybe sort of mix up the feeding, both in terms of the prey species offered, the size offered, uh, the frequency. Um, I mean, I a lot of people, for example, royal pythons, uh, a lot of your viewers will, will, will know royal pythons can, in theory, get up to size maybe in three years. But my animals take four or five years to get up to size simply because I don't power feed them. Um, and I'll... Again, I always say to people, I work for a living, so my animals don't have to. Um, And they can literally breed one year and not breed again for me or never breed at all. 
Um, that's why I have so multiple males and multiple females. So I actually like to rotate them as well. Um, so if one female is bred one year, then she automatically gets the next year off. Um, and I think that's important that, as I say, they're not, I, I don't see them as breeding machines. And as I say, I, I suppose I can liken that to the fact that, as I say, I, I work for a living, some animals don't have to. And I'm not relying on paying my mortgage when it comes to producing animals each year. Yeah, that is one of the issues with breeding reptiles. And, and you know, it's something we've talked about on the podcast before. And I'm not, it's not a slight to anyone who does breed for a living, but it does create some ethical issues where, okay, we've got to get these animals up to size. They can't skip a year if this, you know, even though she's a little bit underweight, we've got to breed her because she needs to pay for herself for being here. And it does create some, some issues. And I also think that kind of what you're saying, a lot of reptiles, we probably breed way too early in herpetoculture. These animals live a lot of a long time for a lot of the species. And it's probably not till five, you know, four, five, six years old when really in the wild, that's probably when they would be breeding. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, let's be honest, everybody would love to make what we do as a hobby into a business and mm -hmm. allow us to sort of doss around all day and sort of spraying down animals and sort of clipping back uh, little ferns and stuff like that. But really, when it gets to that stage, the animals become an asset and not a, not a pet any longer. Um, so there's that need for each individual to sort of, like you say, pay their own way. Um, and I, I don't I don't think I'd ever like to get to that stage where I was having to breed. Every, I mean, the Sumatran pythons, for example, that I have, I, I was I last bred them four years ago. That if they never breed again for me, they'll still remain part of my collection. Um, they don't have to, as I say, maintain themselves. I maintain them by obviously uh, my my monthly wage type thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And that's where you can, yeah, you have more freedom and, and you don't have to rely on, on them producing to to be there for you, which is fantastic. I know we also wanted to chat a little bit about bioactivity because you come at this from a, a little bit more of a historical point of view because, you know, back in early days of, of reptile keeping, having insects in the enclosure was just like way, <laughs> something very, very bad, you know. So maybe yeah. you can lay out your thoughts with bioactivity. Well, yeah, like you say, back in the day, the whole object of keeping reptiles was to make sure that you didn't have any bugs and beasties in your enclosure. Um, back in the day, a lot of animals were, were sort of wild caught as well, so they could harbour sort of uh, little hangers on. Um, so as I say, the idea was to make sure that they were clean um, and obviously make sure that you didn't actually bring in any nasty critters into your, into your enclosures. Um, I suppose with bioactive as well, um, I think John touched on it a couple of episodes ago, maybe, where an enclosure with some sterile substrate that you've just chucked in and then a couple of isopods and stuff, that isn't, that isn't bioactive. You've got to let it mature for a good few months before it's actually functional. Um, I also think as well, I, I, I'm not a gardener. I, I'm not very good at maintaining plants, etc. I think pothos is literally my limit. So anything more delicate I don't think I'd be able to keep it alive um, so I think that's part of the reason why I don't I mean I've got great respect for people that do and are able to maintain a, a proper and a proper bioactive uh, system that's functional but I also think as well there's a danger that some keepers set them up initially and then think well that, that's my job done I've done everything I don't have to sort of keep an eye on them but it's a 
like again, like John said, it's almost more labour intensive mm-hmm. to have a bioactive su- uh, system than it is to have a, a less bioactive system, if you know what I mean. So I think there's a danger that people become less observant, shall we say, of their animals um, because they think, well, I'll, I'll let it alone and let it do its, its own thing. Whereas as you've got to routinely maintain it, you've got to be removing sort of feces and debris and stuff like that on a, a routine sort of basis. Otherwise, the isopods very, very quickly become overwhelmed. And again, as John said, rather than being a positive, it very quickly turns to a negative um, and can I say be detrimental to not only the bioactive part of it, but also the actual reptile that's that's within the enclosure as well. Yeah, and I completely understand that position. I think that I always say if you... If you, especially after that conversation with John, if you want to do a back bioactive a bioactive enclosure, you have to actually enjoy and want to do the work that requires to maintain. So if you're somebody that enjoys trimming plants and, and cutting things back and, and making sure that your cleanup crew is being fed properly and making sure the soil is healthy, if that is something that makes you excited, then go ahead and go do it. But I think you're right where a lot of people will just turn it, it's like a set it and forget it. And that's even some of the dangers of having some automation in your reptile Absolutely. room. Like, you know, I have a mister, like a mist king. So that means I don't have to interact with that enclosure every day, you know, it, it, which is in when I go on trips, it's great. Although sometimes you think like it's it's also nice to be forced to have to interact with your enclosures on a daily basis to make sure things are up to snuff. Automation can kind of make things sort of be just too hands off in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these, the, the heat lamp and the first light, UV light of the day, they're on manual switches so I've actually got to physically come in each day and switch them on which then almost forces me to have a quick look over each individual make sure they're all active Uh, I do have an automatic fogging system that comes on before the lights come on uh, and that's only because I don't fancy getting up at six o'clock in the morning each day to turn it on Uh, but I do like the aspect where uh, I don't have any manual misting systems other than as I say the fogger so I can come in and actually enjoy spending time with my animals basically mm-hmm. um i mean I, I like nothing more which again i'm sure your listeners will um attest is that i like nothing more just spending the days sort of cleaning things out sort of giving them a little mist uh, sort of trimming back things just pottering around really um you sort of, i say to my wife look i'm going up to the animal room for 10 50 minutes and then three hours later you come down and the time passes so quickly just when you're you're lost in your own little world yeah, absolutely. So as far as it goes, as far as your enclosures go, what is your philosophy with setting up enclosures? You can see the enclosures behind you. They look quite naturalistic. Do you just have, do you have a, a system that you use or, or how do you go about that? Um, the Egyptian torso enclosure is natural in terms of um, a, a sandy substrate, but you'll see the, the grass here is plastic grass um, or artificial grass, however you want to um, label it. But I feel very strongly that the tortoises don't mind whether it's real or fake. The purpose of the grass in this enclosure is more to provide them with um, an overhanging place to sort of retreat from the heat and retreat from the light. Um, so they don't ha- it doesn't have to be uh, a real plant to, to fulfil that purpose. Um, as I say, I've got obviously the... the basking like here and also also got the deep heat projector as well uh, and two uv bulbs as well from reptile systems um and i've got those coming on one at seven o'clock in the morning 
until seven o'clock at night and one coming on at 11 o'clock in the morning and going off at three o'clock in the afternoon to try and stimulate the intense midday sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I say, I find that it works really very well for me. Um, I've got plans to upgrade that this enclosure later in the year, but I'm all, almost a bit wary of doing so because I feel as though I've got them actually quite quite well dialed in and I don't want to upset upset that status quo, if you like. Um, ultimately, eventually, they will have to be upgraded. Um, but as I say, I'm a bit uh, dubious about doing so because as I say, the females are seem happy happy mm-hmm. um and are sort of laying eggs regularly um so certainly maybe during the, the winter sort of um sleep then i'll maybe obviously do some uh upgrades etc so that when they wake back up again um they'll come out and obviously they'll be a, a brand new uh, utopia um but yeah actually in terms of snakes uh, i used to keep them far more uh natural maybe uh, i used to keep them in vivariums but my wife and i were looking at moving house and she's like we can't possibly have hundreds and hundreds of vivariums when people come to view the house uh, so i actually downgraded a lot of the animals uh, to sort of fairly basic enclosures uh, and the idea is to now that we've decided not to move the idea is now to upgrade back up again and as much as i like some of the commercially available enclosures I do like as you can see building my own enclosures now I'm not a carpenter by trade but you can go to the local sawmill and have them cut to your size and it means you can incorporate your own designs your own um, things that you want to sort of try and implement Um, so when it comes to upgrading snakes the idea is to go back to what I was doing before which is having a vivarium above and then a hole cut in the bottom and then a drawer underneath so that it almost simulates an underground sort of uh, retreat mm-hmm. and the animal can choose then whether it wants to be underground or above ground and obviously above ground will have sort of a basking area with the UV lights etc that's the that's the kind of idea I love that idea I think that's a really neat it's almost like you have a tub underneath and then a full enclosure above and the animal can yeah. either choose and you know a lot of those animals do spend time you know hidden underground or in burrows and whatnot and to give them that option and then to allow them to come up and explore and, you know, hunt and whatnot. That is a, that's a really cool idea. So when you do that, I have to see pictures because I think that'll be amazing. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, I don't really claim to be in the sort of first person to sort of uh, come up with that idea. I think uh, Bob Applegate had a sort of design similar to that probably way back in the 80s. Um, so I've kind of uh, stolen that, if you like, uh, and kind of modified it to my own sort of personal sort of the way I like to set up my animals, basically. So that's that's the idea. Uh, but as you know, things cost money. Uh, I mean, I don't have a large collection, but snake-wise, I've maybe got 20 animals. So 20 enclosures, all with sort of UV and heat and stuff like that. It will take a bit of money, but um, as long as you're forever progressing and evolving and getting better, then I think that's the name of the game, to be honest. Yeah, that's exactly what I always say. Just have that goal and move towards it when you can, because it is expensive. And, and I think that's what many it's you can't just jump in and spend two thousand dollars on a new enclosure most people can't you know it's got to be a slow burn and i think that's exactly the way to do it so i also wanted to chat with you about wild caught animals and and where do you think their place is in herpetoculture who should keep them and and how widely available should they be i certainly think they have their place um at at the end of the day every animal if you trace them back started as a wild caught animal 
And it was only through those early pioneers that animals became established in the hobby. So to say that no animal should be kept from the wild, um, I think would be wrong. I certainly think there's more spe- there's certain species that are more adaptable or more suitable to being kept in captivity, having been originally collected from the wild. Um, the wide mouth agamas that I have, uh, they were originally wild caught, although they've been in captivity now for over two years. Um, I can now sort of hand feed them. I can now pet them on their back. They're super chilled, so much so that they actually never display their sort of wide mouth, um, which is a bit of a bummer because obviously that's one of the, the major attractions to the species. But um, that is obviously a threat display. And I take it as a, a positive that they, they don't do that any longer so that they're not, they've never actually done it with me. I've, I've had them since December and very, very rarely do they actually display their, their wide mouths. Um, so I take that as a positive. Um, but as I certainly think that there's certain species that are more suited to life in captivity than others. And it takes a certain kind of keeper as well to be able to uh, A, obtain those animals and B, acclimatise them to captivity as well. Um, Again, another one of your previous guests, Francis, um, he seems to have great success, um, possibly because he keeps them in more natural type settings. uh, So the transition from the wild into life in captivity isn't so vast. Um, I know that as he has great success with certain species that nobody else seems to have success with. Um, so as I, said, I wouldn't uh, decry anybody that wants to keep a species, just make sure that obviously, A, you've done your research, you know what you're getting into. It may have internal and external issues that you have to deal with um, and obviously follow sort of proper quarantine procedures, etc. And as I say, nothing wrong at all with bringing animals in from the wild, provided it's done sustainably. Um, last thing we want to do is to obviously attribute or, or be the cause of a species becoming extinct in the wild. Um, but certainly, as I say, I think sometimes, unfortunately, captivity for some species is the only way to ensure its survival in the future. Yes. Yeah. And I basically feel the same way. I think that they do obviously have a place in the hobby and there are some keepers that should keep with them or, or keep wild caught and work with wild caught and hopefully produce captive bread. And it, it can be annoying when you go into a, a chain pet store and you see a wall of wild caught animals that are going to be going home with the 10 year old for the birthday present. And I think hopefully we can sort of wean that away and, and bring in those animals too. Yeah, exactly. Buy them time, protect them on the planet. And so as far as your, you know, you're talking about that you started to become more involved with conservation, or at least that was your philosophy with keeping. And I think you were telling me that you initially started working with standing day geckos and Jamaican boas. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. How did you first get into breeding some of these more threatened species? Yeah, again, you've got to remember that this was, well, probably would have been about 25 years ago now. So although standing day geckos in the hobby may be quite, uh, or readily available now, back then that wasn't the case. Um, and I was able to sort of, it was actually through a, a, a science teacher uh, at another school, actually. Um, I was actually able to sort of get involved in those sort of conservation projects and things. I think the problem is that many of the zoological collections have been burned in the past by liaising with private individuals, etc. cetera. Um, and I think that's why it's less common nowadays. But again, the landscape was very different back in the day. Um, and again, Keepers may have their day in the future. I think, obviously, as resources at zoological collections are stretched more and more, I think the mantle to conserve some of the smaller species, like 
frogs and reptiles may actually be passed to private individuals. I think that's, that would be a very good way to justify our hobby. Um, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but certainly in the UK, there's various uh, animal rights groups that would see an end to our keeping of animals in captivity. And if we could justify our worth to, to, the, to the species, I think that would be a huge feather in our cap. Um, and as I, I think private individuals, whether you keep royal pythons, whether you keep bearded dragons, look at other species that are maybe not as well kept, um, look to maybe diversify, uh, and as I say, be a positive for future for, for, the, for the animals. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually, that that maybe we will be the offset for the smaller species, as long as we can show our worth, right? And that's the thing, is we we got to have a professionalism and a goal that's focused on conservation, and it can't just be, you know, breeding frog morphs or something, you know, because yeah, we, yeah. we could go that path too, which is which is not ideal. So let's jump in, because you, you have some serious experience in this domain working with, with a couple of species. So let's talk about the sun gazers, because I think this whole project is, is pretty fascinating. So maybe first you could just tell us how you found that species to begin with, or, or what drew you to them in the first place? Yeah. Right when I was sort of back in the, the early days, um, I was reading a book, I can't remember the exact title of the book, but I seen a picture of a sun gazer um, and I immediately fell in love with this animal and everybody I spoke to about the sun gazer um, said, oh, that's a Euromastic and I'm like, oh, that's great. So and obviously at the time they were uh, readily available, um, albeit wild caught. But when I actually went to see one, I was like, that, that's not what I was seeing in, in the picture. And it was only through speaking to other uh, old timers that they, they said that's actually a sun gazer. And at the time, the ironic thing is, they were brought in 10 a penny from South Africa. Uh, they were literally almost a throwaway species, wow. like many other animals. Um, unfortunately, nowadays, if you want to purchase a sun gazer, A, it's very difficult in terms of legality, but also you have to have deep, quite deep pockets. Um, so moving on from that initial experience, when I tried to sort of look to see what information was available on the animal, there was a very, very distinct lack of information available. Again, remember this was when internet was in its infancy. You had actually had to physically phone people, which I think to some people nowadays is quite a, an alien concept. Mm-hmm. You actually had to either, I mean, I remember actually physically writing to, to Bert Langerwerth at, uh, from Agama International and actually actually had to send him off a letter and wait a couple of weeks for him to reply. Um, but getting into the actual sun gazer project was a case of, because there was such a lack of information, I decided to sort of try and pull it all together. Um, and at the time, as I say, the internet was in its infancy, but I created a website to sort of, as I say, just pull all the information together. Um, and through that, I was then contacted by the European Studbook Foundation and asked if I wanted to administer the studbook for the sun gazer, uh, which I do continuously now. Uh, and also the armadillo lizard as well. Um, and it's supposed to be a bit like the old saying with Rome, if you build it, they will come. Mm-hmm. And really by default, because I'd created that website, I then became known as the, the sun gazer guy. Um, but it was no, it wasn't suffice just to simply keep the species because I was fortunate enough to actually uh, import some from South Africa that were F2 generation. Um, I managed to import a male and a female pair the idea always was to actually get more to create a colony and create a group of them. But financially, 
I just couldn't afford to do it. And everyone I approached for assistance and help, um, although they're very encouraging and very uh, positive, it'll always kind of fell short of actually trying to, to help me in that respect. So given the fact that the Sun Gazer hasn't been bred in captivity, um, certainly with any regularity, um, there are rumours or suspicions that they have been bred in captivity. As I say, I like to think that as the stud book keeper, I do keep my ear pretty close to the ground. And as far as I know, no one has managed to breed them with, as I say, any regularity and to actually ensure that the youngsters that have been produced survive long term. Um, so as I say, with that in mind, I thought to myself, well, this simply can't continue because if you liken it to the tiger, yes, it's endangered, but we know how to breed the tiger. So every single year, there's more and more tigers produced. So eventually, the species will survive if we do it properly. Whereas with the sun gazer, because they've not been bred in captivity, that trend is on the downward trend. Um, so through my own research, um, I assume, because we've still not managed to do it thus far, as far as I'm aware, I assume that one of the major um, factors to actually breeding them in captivity is to stimulate the, the natural environment. Now, again, as a stud book keeper, I've visited several zoos uh, here in the UK and in Europe. And unfortunately, in the past, many of the sungays were actually kept on a desert type environment. And that simply isn't how sungazes are found in the wild. Uh, so as I say, I'd actually purchased uh, some data loggers uh, that actually were programmed to collect temperature and humidity data every four hours for a full calendar year. And I think I've sent you a couple of pictures. I think you may be post later Yeah, yeah on. they'll be in the video right now. So anyone that's listening, you can come back to the video. They'll also be in the show notes if you're just listening on audio. But if you're watching on YouTube, they should be right on the screen right now. Great. Super. So another one fundamental aspect of the sun gazer's life cycle is the fact that it lives in the burrow, uh, which is actually one of its more common names called old folk. And it basically translates to old folk or old person as it sits at the entrance of its burrow. Uh, and again, it's rumoured that J.R. Tolkien uh, took his inspiration for Smog the Dragon from the sun gazer, hence the Latin name Smog Giganteus. Um, so as I say, the data loggers were strategically placed, uh, one above ground and one at the terminus of the burrow. And as I say, they collect temperature and humidity data every four hours for a full calendar year. And in conjunction with the Endangered Wildlife Trust in South Africa, um, we identified six uh, locations to actually set up these data loggers. Um, and they've been running for the last five years. Uh, and we've got some fantastic data in terms of how the animals in captivity should be kept. Uh, obviously, it's now a case of trying to implement that information uh, into something that's tangible and something that's actually usable now. Um, and obviously get that out into the public domain so that people that are actually keeping them, whether it be privately or at zoological collections, can actually start to manipulate the temperature and humidity more akin to actually in the wild. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. So have you you've gone there yourself to to south africa or yeah. you just send these data loggers yeah, no, no. i've been a couple of times um initially i went out must be five years ago now i think uh, to actually install them uh, again i think there's some pictures there of us actually threading them into the burrow um and installing them actually in in in, in the natural habitat 
And I've been very, very fortunate to actually uh, see them in the wild numerous times. Um, one of the other things you're talking about, obviously, bringing animals in from the wild, but one of the other kind of contentious subjects is uh, trophy hunting. Now, although I personally don't partake in trophy hunting, we've actually found that land reserves that, that trophy hunting is allowed on, that's the most common place to actually find the sun gazer uh, because it's obviously protected by rangers usually. Uh, it doesn't allow people to sort of randomly go into the, the area and disturb them. Um, so as I say, although I personally don't partake in that sort of um, activity, I do value it in terms of obviously conserving the, the land that the sun gazers live on. Um, yeah, that, that is, is, it's interesting. It's sort of like even in North America, the hunting organizations often do the most for conservation because they, mm. you know, they put money into making sure that the, the wetlands stay secure and, and we're not destroying them by, you know, plowing them down with, with building condos on top of these, these landscapes. So yeah, that is definitely interesting. And then, so is there, I guess, you know, in, if they're in these sort of trophy hunting ranges of these reservations, they're protected there, but is the rest of their native landscape being destroyed by human activity as well? Like, are they declining in, in, wild, in the wild? Absolutely. Um, they're most prevalent on farmland, um, sort of certain type of grassland. Farmers obviously graze cattle and sheep on the land, um, but South Africa... Again, I don't know what it's like in the US and Canada, but in the UK, farmers get paid to set aside land for wildlife and things, whereas there's not that same initiative in South Africa. So if you choose as a farmer, if you choose to set aside a certain area, that's less revenue you're going to gain from that land. Um, so in, this, in the case of the sun gazer, when a farmer comes along to plough his, plow his field, his or her field, it unfortunately then ploughs up the burrow uh, that the sun gazers live in, because obviously... As soon as the sun gazer sees a threat coming towards it, the first thing it does is dives into its burrow. And of course, unfortunately, the farmer then comes along and plows up the, the burrow. And unfortunately, a lot of sun gazers are actually killed by that method. Uh, also, land modification practices such as mining, uh, gold mining as well, and coal as well. Uh, that also sort of decimates uh, land. Uh, and also collection for the, the mooty trade, the, the bushmeat trade as well, um, and also the, the illegal uh, pet trade as well. Um, it's interesting to know as well that South Africa has not actually allowed the legal export of South a of sun gazers. I think it's probably the last five years. So if you see a, a, a juvenile, a small sun gazer offered for sale, my question instantly would be, well, where did it come from? Um, and I'll, I'll let you, I'll let your listeners decide where, where that where that animals come from. Yeah, yeah. The animals definitely still slip through the cracks, unfortunately. And so tell me a little bit about what the data showed, because it's pretty phenomenal that you have five years of data. So maybe you could kind of start with what people were, you say, you know, mostly at the beginning, people were keeping more of a desert setup, probably low humidity and high temperatures. And then maybe you could talk about what you guys have learned and how, how that's changed. Yeah. I, I, again, keeping animals in an incorrect condition, uh, I think, as I said, doesn't promote breeding at all. Uh, and as I say, before people were keeping them in a much more dry habitat than what they used to. Uh, South Africa goes through four distinct seasons where it's got a rainy season, uh, obviously a, a summer season as well. Uh, what we actually found was that although the temperatures above ground could fluctuate, obviously, uh, throughout the year, the actual 
temperatures and humidity in the borough remain pretty static all the way throughout the year, um, which is probably the, the very reason why sungazers have a borough, um, because obviously it allows them to retreat from the heat of the summer and also the, the cold as well of the winter. Um, so as I say, that was something that we assumed was the case, um, but as they, to actually see it physically recorded in a data logger was, was really quite interesting. Um, again, before there was environmental data available, but it was from a weather station that was at the side of a building. Mm. And some users don't live on the side of a building, so really it wasn't very useful. Um, it gave you an, a rough idea, of course, but actually to get the recordings at ground level where the Sungazers were actually uh, living and sort of going about their daily business, that was, was really quite fascinating and quite interesting. Um, unfortunately, not all of the data loggers survived, uh, and we did actually get a couple more data loggers throughout the course of that five-year period to actually install them in different locations as well. So um, we've, we've tried to kind of sort of year on year, or certainly the last couple of years, actually try and increase the number of data loggers that were actually installed to actually continue with that information. It's always fascinating when we when we have a species in herpetoculture that is just a tough nut to crack. I think it, it forces everybody to just be narrow focused and laser focused on figuring out what is going on here because so many reptile species, like you said earlier, breed relatively easy. You just throw the male and the female together and they're going to breed. And when we have one like this, it's like, what is the secret? So how close do you think you guys are to, to figuring out what needs to happen? Um. That's quite a difficult question. As I say, years gone by, some cases were relatively easy to actually obtain. Whereas now, when we might be on the cusp of actually finding the stimulus to breed, they're almost unobtainable. And certainly from the stud book point of view, there isn't any location in Europe that actually has multiple males and multiple females to actually recreate that colony lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And obviously, statistically, the more animals you have, the better the chances are of breeding. So if you've only got one male and one female, I think as well with many animals in captivity, familiarity depreciates the, the need to breed. If you've only got one male and one female, there's no incentive for that male to sort of get in quickly before another male gets in to breed with the female. Um, that might sound kind of fairly barbaric about getting in there first, but if you've only got one male and one female, as I say, that familiarity can sometimes um, put a halt to any breeding, where now I think the idea is to actually get either a location, one location in Europe or the US or whatever, that actually kind of pull together multiple animals and have a real concerted effort to actually try and find the stimulus. I mean, the environmental stimulus may not be the stimulus to breed, but at least if we have a real good go at trying to uh, recreate that, and if after two or three years of, of doing that, we still aren't able to breed it, at least we can cross it off the list and then move on to something else. Um, but doing nothing simply isn't an option. Um, and that was why much of the project has been self-funded uh, because I, I, I recognised the need for it to be done. Um, I could have applied for funding, but I work full-time, not in the reptile business, and I just didn't have the the resources, the time to actually write all these proposals uh, to obtain the grants that were required to get it off the ground. So as I say, I actually done it myself with the help of two or three other individuals uh, and companies. Um, and I think it, 
not to blow on Trump at all, but I think that's a prime example whereby a private individual who might not necessarily work in the reptile industry can still have a, a positive impact uh, on the species. Um, as I said to you earlier, I'm never going to be a rocket scientist, but I would hope that 50 years, 100 years from now, the information I've gathered is still being referred to and still uh, obviously helping towards the long-term survival of that species. Yeah, it is such an important topic to or a point to make. And this is perfect because the episode that I recorded yesterday, which I think will be the episode that the listeners will have heard last week, was a, was Nick Gordon from the Abronia Alliance. And they're the same situation where they're private keepers that are focusing on one species. And I think a lot of times people who don't have a professional tag behind their name or aren't involved in a professional world for reptiles don't think that they can make a difference, but you can. You just have, we're, we're completely capable of doing this. So our, our, our keepers right now seeing breeding activity but the eggs aren't coming to term or is there slugs happening or is there no breeding or is it kind of all of the above um well first of all that they, they produce live young oh they're live um, young okay yeah live young um thankfully for the female when the young are born the spines are quite soft okay. uh, <laughs> and then obviously they harden up over the, the the forthcoming days um but yes i mean I, i'm when i kept my animals uh, i witnessed copulation two or three times but um, the main, or I believe the main stimulus to breeding was to actually put them through a period of hibernation or bromation. Um, and I think for many species, that winter cool down actually allows the male to create that viable sperm. And without that, I mean, for my agamas, for example, I've got females laying eggs left, right and centre, but they were never put through a, a winter cool down. So the eggs themselves are infertile. And I think hopefully, obviously now in this year coming, when I put them through a winter brumation, the males will obviously have that period to charge up their sperm so that come next year, uh, the eggs that they produce are hopefully viable. And that's obviously the case with the sun gazer as well, I think, um, that the males need to go through that cool down period so that in the, the, the warmer months, the sperm is, is viable. But of course, if you're a private keeper and you've only maybe got two or three animals, you're not going to subject your animals to these unknown temperatures for these unknown durations. You're just simply not going to do it because if you lose your animal during uh, brumation, it's very difficult financially and physically to get a replacement. So I can understand why people have been reluctant to actually subject their animals to that, uh, to that cool down period. Um, but unfortunately, it's one of these things that without doing that, I don't think we'll ever manage to breed them in captivity. So it's almost like a, a lesser of two evils. And that's why I think if one institution or one individual was to bring multiple animals together um, with that information and have a real concerted effort actually trying to breed them, um, I think that would be tremendous. But again, as I say, um, the resources required, the infrastructure required, logistically, all that sort of thing, I think it would be really very difficult to do, um, certainly for a private individual. Yeah, it is definitely an interesting problem. And I know South Africa does get quite cold in their winter, and it's winter right Absolutely. now for them. So it does dip pretty low. So how, how low are some of those temperature readings you're getting from their, their natural environment? Um, I'll be honest with you, I've not number crunched the temperatures uh, for quite some time. Um, but, it, but you're right, the, the temperatures do get very low. I mean, there's been reports of snow being on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and again, other people attest that they've seen other species when there's been snow on the ground or ice, that you still see the animals bask uh, to get that, that UV 
uh, from the sun, even during the winter time. Um, so, yeah, as I say, I think that winter cool down is key to actually try to breed them uh, in the future. Um, but as they will see, as they could very well be that the environmental stimulus has got nothing to do with it. But I think if we can cross that off the list, we can then look at something else as being the the key ingredient to actually breed them. Yeah, and I, I bet the environment does play a huge role. It's just you know, hormone production really does play a lot off the circ- circadian rhythm and whatnot. So. W- you had mentioned colonies. Are in the wild? Are they living in in larger groups? Uh, well, again, yes and no. Um, any literature you read suggests that the animals live in colonies where you've got multiple males, multiple females. The young will also live with the female and the male some in some occasions and share the burrow. Um, however, from my own experience of being in South Africa, when we actually seen sun gazers. It was only maybe one or two individuals. There was there wasn't that colony structure that that everyone suggests there was. Now I don't know whether that's due to circumstance, i.e., someone has obviously poached them and collected them. Uh, it's maybe worth mentioning as well that the atypical environment that the animals were found in, we found them in areas whereby they were under tree roots. Which, if you look at the literature, it says they prefer open grassland. Um, we also found them quite close to human habitation. So I don't know whether the animals are being forced almost away from where they would ideally like to live into these more, um, more um, busier areas, shall we say. Um, obviously, if you're a bird and you want to lo- relocate yourself, you just fly and go to another field. Whereas the sun gazer doesn't have that option. It's almost got to sort of blindly set out on any sort of direction and it's a bit of a a lottery as to whether you actually find another colony and bearing in mind the burrow plays plays quite an important aspect of the lifestyle so each night they would have to at least dig some sort of scrape in the the ground to retreat to so that flow of different blood uh, and different sort of the corridors if you like that just simply isn't there because again because they're predominantly found on grassland within a farm a farming environment, the next field over may contain maize or crops that are completely unsuitable. So it might be three or four fields over before you get to the next sun gazer colony. And obviously between there and there, they, they may become predated upon or they may go off slightly at a, a different angle and completely miss the other colony. Right, right. And so can you tell me a little bit about how the stud book, the stud book works? Because you, I think you administer the stud book for both, you, you had said the, the armadillo lizard and the sun gazer. Now, how, how does that work? Does somebody, if somebody has one or brings one in, do they let you know that they have one and they have a, an ID with the animal or, or what is the, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, very high level without getting all technical about it. The stud book really is just there to uh, um, acknowledge animals kept either by certain individuals like privately if you wish to register your animals or it's obviously far more common in zoos. Now with certain species the zoo's function or the stud bookkeeper's function is to determine or to suggest where the young of one pairing goes to to to, ver- to diversify the, the genetics. Unfortunately with the stud book for the sun gazer because there's no animals being produced in captivity that functionality just simply isn't there. Um, stud, stud book registration is certainly for the, the European Stud Book Foundation is completely voluntary. 
Um, a private individual doesn't relinquish control or ownership of that animal. Um, and again, I would encourage your, your listeners that if they have an animal that's being administered by a stud book, send them an email. Get in contact with them. Uh, you don't. You can be as active or as inactive as you wish. Uh, certainly, from a European Stud Book Foundation perspective, um, if we had more animals, um, we could maybe obviously exchange animals between us to make sure that that genetic diversity was being maintained. Um, but unfortunately, because we don't have that flow of animals like some other stud books, that's unfortunately not an option uh, with the Stungazer or uh, Armadillo lizard stud books. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense if you're if you just have the animal, even if you don't plan on breeding it. At least it's nice to know, at least to have it in the stud book that we know that there's an animal there. So, in the stud book is both private and public animals, right? Animals that are in the zoos as well as private sector. Certainly, with the European Stud Book Foundation, as I can only speak from the European Stud Book right. Foundation perspective. Um, that yes, we we document or we acknowledge animals kept in zoological collections, and also if private individuals want to actually participate, like me, um, then we're encouraged to do so. Um, because as I say, there isn't so many, well, there isn't any animals being produced at the moment. There's no, there, there isn't that. We suggest that animal A lives with animal Z uh, to create a new diverse uh, colony or a diverse pair. Uh, but obviously that ultimately is what the, the, the purpose of the stud book is, is there for. Yeah, I find that so fascinating because here in North America, it is very much a public domain, the stud books, and the private keepers aren't, there There was some examples on the reptile side of the private keepers being involved in that, but that's pretty much being removed. And in some ways, I understand from the public point of view, they don't want to interact with the private keepers because maybe things aren't done to the book. But at the same time, it's such a shame because it's a great opportunity for keepers like yourself, people who are so intensely involved. And, you know, you're not, we're not going to find anybody who knows more about the sun gazer than yourself. Why wouldn't, why shouldn't you be allowed to be involved in the stud book? It just makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, like I said earlier, I think um, as time goes on, I think uh, keepers, suitably qualified or suitably experienced keepers, will become far more important to the survival of, of many species. I mean, we know ourselves that private keepers seem to have far more success with some of the more delicate species than zoological collections do. Um, I mean, Fiji iguanas, for example, uh, they seem to be more commonly bred by private individuals than they are by zoological collections, uh, certainly here in Europe. I know, I know obviously there's a bit of a, a legality issue over, over in the States about Fiji iguanas, for example, but um, private keepers, from my experience, have far more success when it comes to breeding animals than, than certain zoological collections have. Um, I mean, for example, the Egyptian tortoises, um, I would love to be involved with some form of uh, formal exchange of animals. Um, now I've got, as I say, 17 eggs in the incubator at the moment, plus five little hatchlings that I've got uh, that I'm rearing up at the moment. I would love to exchange some of my animals with other zoological collections to benefit them and to benefit myself as well. Um, but there's there is a disconnect between private individuals and zoological collections. And as I say, to a degree, I can understand that because the zoological collections have been burnt in the past um, by, by private individuals. And I think, as I say, um, to help justify our hobby, um, not that we as keepers need to justify, but I think to external people looking in, I think to be able to say that we're part, I mean, Eastern indigo snakes, for example, uh, I know that there's private individuals involved with that sort of conservation uh, over in the States. Um, the Tuatara in New Zealand as well, 
again, there's private individuals involved with that um, that breeding activity, uh, and I think suitably qualified individuals have a, have a great asset or should be a great asset going forward. Yeah, I think I think it's okay for us to feel like we have to justify it in some ways because we we are keeping animals that are from the wild at the end of the day. And I think it's an okay thing to have to justify. And I think the level of professionalism we can add by doing, getting involved in situations like this is only a good thing. And so I think with the sun gazer as well, you have helped zoos establish the habitats. Is that right? Just to give them advice and have they come to you looking yeah, for absolutely. how to care for them? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, by default, because I was the only one that created the website, for example, I became the support of call. Um, and I don't mind sharing any information with people based on my own experiences. Um, if someone comes to me and says, look, I, I'm looking to do this, I don't mind helping. Um, when it comes to the actual data, uh, that's we're actually having a, a meeting tomorrow, actually, about how we distribute that data so that it's readily available to other individuals. Um, so, like I say, I would like to think that when I'm long gone, the information I've helped to gather... Uh, does go some way to actually helping to conserve the species uh, in future. As I say, it's not just myself as well. There's other people that have been involved. As I say, the Endangered Wildlife Trust, I couldn't have done it without them. Um, but as I say, if I've helped even a small part to actually conserve a species, then when I come to meet my maker and he says, what have you done with your life? I can say, well, I've helped to try and conserve the species. Um, mm -hmm. As cheesy as that may sound. No, I don't think it sounds cheesy at all, and it won't sound cheesy to any of the listeners, too. And so right now you don't keep any sun gazers, right? Will you have them again? So you obviously had them, and you're shaking your head. No. Um, I actually sold my animals so that I could fund the, the project in South Africa. Okay. Um, and having actually seen them in South Africa, I don't think even a, a 10 by 12 enclosure is big enough, uh, especially if you're keeping two or three males and two or three females. Uh, I think if, if someone came to me and says, right, Fraser, you've got a blank check, go and reproduce this species. I think the first thing I would do would be to build a sort of a large, almost like a greenhouse type enclosure um, and just have it go fallow basically uh, and put the sun gazers there and just leave them alone. Um, as I say, one of the individuals that was successful with breeding them in captivity was going back to Bert. Uh, Langerwerf at Agama International and he basically allowed them just to stay outside and left them alone. Uh, it did take them a, a good few years for them to become acclimatised to the Northern Hemisphere climate and um, environmental conditions but he was able to do it um, in the past and I think as I say if someone was to give me a blank check and say right on you go I think that would be my my sort of first thing is to build a almost like a, a greenhouse enclosure um, I don't think they're the type of species that should be really kept in a small indoor enclosure um, by, by private individuals, if I'm honest. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's that's really interesting. I, I was not expecting that answer at all. So it's, so really for you, it's about, it is really about perpetuating the species on the planet. And it's not about making sure we have them in the hobby so people can go to the pet store and keep them like a bearded dragon. It's, it's so that animal doesn't disappear. So in the perfect world, where would you like to see them in captivity, mostly in zoo settings? Well, yes and no. Uh, I, I do think there is certain private individuals who have the resources and have the facilities to keep them. And if you do, absolutely fantastic. And I would certainly support that. Uh, but I think obviously it's beyond the reach of most private individuals. 
Um, I think it would need to be, as I say, a zoological collection that really put a lot of time and effort and money into it to get it off the ground. Um, but you know yourself, as far as Joe Public's concerned, they could go to a zoo and see a bearded dragon. It doesn't have to be a sun gazer for them to be wowed or amazed by it. Mm-hmm. So for a, zoo to, for a zoo to invest the time and effort and money into an enclosure for sun gazers, as far as Joe Public's concerned, that could just as well be an iguana or a bearded dragon or a leopard gecko. Yeah. Um, but They call everything iguanas anyway. <laughs> well, exactly. Exactly. I, I mean, I think that's all about progressing as an individual and progressing as a keeper as well, that I have come to the realisation that as much as I would love to keep the sun gazer in captivity, the reality is without a huge investment and a huge area of land to do it, then keeping them in captivity is maybe not the best idea. Once we obviously are able to breed them and find the stimulus to breed them, then yes, absolutely, it should be encouraged. But until that time, I think we need to be looking at conserving the environment that they're they're from. Um, I mean, you could liken it as well to the the panda, for example. You could have the most successful captive breeding efforts imaginable and produce a thousand pandas every year. But if you're not conserving the actual environment for them to go back into, what is the point? If we don't have the environment for the animals to go back to, then all your captive breeding efforts are almost futile. Uh, because I would hate to see a, a day when the animal was only kept in captivity and there was no area for them to go back to in the wild. Um, and I think, as I say, the best, certainly short-term, idea would be to conserve a, a, an area of land in South Africa that was being properly managed, um, was secure uh, for the sun gazer long-term. And I know that, as I say, the Endangered Wildlife Trust are trying to make those corridors between certain groups and certain colonies they're trying to make those viable. Uh, but as I say, it's not always possible without any funding or without any support. Mm-hmm. So what about the sun gazer made you realize these shouldn't be kept in smaller enclosures? Was it just the amount of movement they, they are just on a regular basis? or Because you could almost have, you could almost ask that question about many species, right? If you were to go to their wild habitat, you might scratch your head and think, geez, I need, I need a room for this animal rather than a four foot enclosure. Yeah, I mean, I, I tried to replicate the colony lifestyle by, but a bit embarrassed to admit it, by actually putting some mirrors round about the enclosure so that the animals would would see another animal. Uh, but they very, very quickly realised that it was a mirror, and they actually, I don't think they realised it was themselves they were looking at, but they realised that it wasn't actually another animal. Um, so I tried to obviously re- recreate that uh, in in captivity, um, which didn't work. Um, I think it's more from the fact that. The actual burrows could be maybe 15 feet apart. So they weren't on top of each other all the time. Mm-hmm. And they had that space to sort of move without coming into contact all the time with each other. Um, I think, as I say, that almost kind of rubs them up the wrong way. If you're continually coming into contact with other individuals that you're meant to be quite far apart from. Yeah, yeah, that makes yeah that 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 makes sense. If they're even if they are a somewhat communal species, it doesn't you know they might each individually have you know, several square meters of space on their own, and it doesn't and you cannot do that in a single enclosure. And, yeah, I mean uh, you tend you tend to find in South Africa where the sun gazer's burrow was, it maybe would only move maybe ten feet from that burrow uh, because they they're not very fast at running. Um, 
So they wouldn't really venture far from the, the safety of the burrow. Uh, and as I say, if you've got one burrow here and then a radius of 10 feet and then you've got another one in captivity, it's very, very difficult to kind of recreate that sort of space. Mm-hmm. So if, if eventually we do have some success captive breeding and there's some production happening there and we're simultaneously able to preserve the natural landscape and their, their sort of natural habitat, do you, do you ever, for, and now this is one of those questions where some people say, no, you can never do this, but is, would it ever be possible to start re-releasing animals into their natural habitat? I know rewilding is kind of a contentious subject, but it is being used, in, in, even in the UK, they're starting to do it a lot more. So where are your thoughts there? I think ultimately that would be the, that should be the ultimate goal uh, with most species. However, practically speaking, re-releasing animals is very, very difficult. And you've got to jump through many, many different hoops to actually get to that stage where you're actually releasing animals back into the wild, not least the fact that the issue that caused the animal to become rare or endangered in the first place hasn't been addressed. Right. I mean, I always say the same about zoos. In an ideal world, there would be no such thing as a zoo because there would be no need to conserve a species in captivity. But we don't live in an ideal world. And until such times that pollution, poaching, habitat loss, all that sort of thing is addressed and actually changed for the good, then unfortunately, I say unfortunately, zoos are are, are absolutely essential. Uh, And until the mindset of people in South Africa changes, then releasing them back into the world would just be almost releasing them back in the world just for them to be poached upon or dug up through farmer. I mean, again, from having seen sun gazers on the ground and interacting with school children and sort of people that would collect them, etc. Conservation can only begin when somebody's got a full stomach. You cannot try and conserve a species while the people in the immediate area are starving. Because to try and say to them, look, don't kill this lizard or don't collect that lizard if some importer gives you a couple of pounds to do that, trying to say, say to them not to do that. I mean, if it was me and I was trying to feed my family and someone said, look, I'll give you two months wages to go and collect five or six little lizards, of course you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. So culturally and so communally, you've got to get the buy-in from the local, the local people. Uh, to be proud of the fact that it's an endemic species, uh, it's not found anywhere else. And even in South Africa, it's very, very sort of localised. Uh, and again, I've sent you a picture of the actual distribution of the species. Um, so even in South Africa, it's not widespread. Um, so it's to get people to be proud of their, their natural um, flora and fauna. Um, and obviously, if people do come and ask children at the local school to collect these animals, that they refused. Um, and again, I think, to be honest, that will be the next phase of the project, the Save Our Sungazers campaign, is that uh, we interact with the school children. We maybe go and sort of do like a roadshow type thing um, and really create a sort of sense of pride in the fact that no one else in the whole entire world has actually got these, these, these animals. Um, and I think that will be the next stage of the project. That is an incredibly important point to make. And, I, and I've, it's a point that I've sort of made before is we can't fault the people who live in those locations for doing the poaching or, you know, participating in the skin trade or whatever it is, because literally it's the difference between them being able to feed their family and their kids tomorrow if they go do it. So they, they, 
there's no ethical decision there. They're going to protect themselves and their family and anybody in that situation would do the same. So, and I think that that's a, a, a great way to put it too, is kind of making it seem like mascot is maybe too soft of a word, but turning that into, I mean, Canada did that with the beaver years, you know, hundred years ago, or whatever, 200 years ago when everybody was killing the beavers for pelts, sort of transformed it into more of an icon for the country. Now they're protected species and nobody's going to kill a beaver. And you could do that with the sun gazer. You're right. It is a point of pride. It's the only place on the planet where that animal exists. It could be, you know, almost on their flag. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's, that's I mean, really cool. It, it's like us being or taking the moral high ground by saying don't cut down the Amazon rainforest as we sit on our, our table that's made of mahogany. Yeah, exactly. You, you, can't, you can't take the moral high ground when you say you'll come against, well, the, the British, uh, the, the Home Guard used to have bearskin hats and it used to be real, real bearskin hats. So you can't be against killing bears, but yet you've got the bearskin hats. I know it's obviously, it's not it's not real fur anymore, but you can't, as I say, take the moral high ground when you yourself are not whiter than white, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing these these protesters protesting oil rigs in their plastic kayaks. I was <laughs> just thinking, you know, th- there's some disconnect here. And I was talking to somebody who's doing some work in the Amazon for, for they take people who, locals who participate in, deforestation because that's their job and then convert them to being tour guides they know the forest better than anybody and you can do that all you have to do is replace their income with something that will give them the same food on the table and you know these these people aren't excited about having to go to work and mine for gold by spinning you know buckets of mercury with their bare hands like they would much rather do something else but they're just getting by so yeah you I think sometimes in the Western world, we just finger wag at people without realizing that, like you say, you're sitting at your mahogany table saying, hey, don't cut down the rainforest. And you know, there's there's that disconnect. So there is that cultural education that can, that can take place and make them excited about that species. And, and I mean, it's I can't I mean, I can't imagine how much money they're making out of poaching sun gazers, but maybe maybe there is money to be made there. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think the, the thing and this is something I've had sort of long discussions with uh, people in South Africa, when you mention the word poaching, it clunges, or or smuggling, it clunges up this image that people are jumping on an aeroplane with animals stuffed in their pockets and strapped strapped around their waist, etc. But that's not the case. These animals are coming out of South Africa with genuine paperwork. And then when they appear in the UK or Europe or the US or Japan or whatever, They've got genuine paperwork. So it's very, very difficult to actually then retrospectively prove that these animals have been uh, have been poached from the wild. Um, it's almost poaching in plain sight or smuggling in plain sight. Um, and I, another organisation I'm part of is the National Wildlife Crime Unit in the UK. And the amount of times where I've sort of said to them, look, I've got suspicions about maybe this particular animal, but then when they go and check on it, the animal has actually got proper paperwork. So there's nothing then that they can do to actually prosecute or uh, try and redress the, the, the balance, unfortunately. So as far as the, you know, in quotes, proper paperwork, this is just paperwork that will stipulate that this animal is captive bred and they're good to go. Is that is that pretty much what they'll, they'll do? They'll fraudulently create captive bred animals? Yeah. Well, obviously, they, they'll need export paperwork to come from South Africa to whoever, whichever country. Um, they're a CITES two listed animal, uh, the sun gazers, so they can still be traded. But as I say, once they have the export paperwork from South Africa, 
those smuggled animals then become legal animals. Um, something else that I'm involved with uh, was DNA sampling of the captive sun gazers to determine whether they actually originated from captive bred animals or whether they actually came from the wild. Um, logistically, that's proven to be quite difficult to get to coordinate that all. Um, but that's certainly something that I'm involved with as well um, to try and determine how how these animals have been um, been obtained, shall we say. But again, you can imagine the reluctance of people to actually be get, get involved in that because that could, in theory, be incriminating them and having animals that are illegal. Um, and part of the project was to say that there'd be no repercussions uh, for these animals um, because they're obviously legal animals now. Um, but certainly, again, logistically, that's prone to be more difficult to actually get off the ground and actually... Uh, become established. Yeah, that does definitely become a gray area when you could do your DNA test and realize you have a, a group full of illegal animals in your basement and you had no idea. Can we talk a little bit about the work that you do with the Scottish government? Because I think that's pretty fascinating as well. So you already mentioned that crime unit. So maybe you could, I think there's a couple of th- different things that you, you do with them. And maybe you could just uh, run through that. Yeah, it's a bit like, um, I suppose, US ARC, whereby there's individuals looking to put a stop to our hobby or a stop to keeping exotic animals in general. Um, and a couple of years ago, one of the MSPs uh, suggested that keeping exotic animals in Scotland would be stopped. Um, and pretty much like the sun gazer, rather than sitting back and bemoaning the fact that nobody's doing anything, I literally emailed them and said, look, this is terrible because we do do tremendous good. Um, you do realise that exotic animals could yeah, uh, someone's budgie or goldfish because they are technically exotic animals yeah. um, and when you put it to that perspective I think most people have had at some point a goldfish um, or what about the old lady or old gentleman that is completely by themselves but take comfort from the little budgie or the little finch or whatever that's singing away in the corner um, I don't think MPs or MSPs in, in our case have that rationale to say well, look hold on if we actually put a stop to that this is going to be the implications. And again, even going back to sustainable um, harvesting from the wild, if we were to say, for example, stop um, the exotic animal keeping, there's a whole knock-on effect to people that produce live food for feeding them, people that produce frozen food, the manufacturers, the importers, the exporters. That There's a whole myriad of other people that further down the line, that by putting a stop to something, you're going to financially impact. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I was invited um, to give, as, as a sort of subject matter expert, to give advice about uh, potential problems or potential outcomes. Um, and I think when it concerns the UK, uh, change is coming, absolutely change is coming. It'll just be to what extent that changes. Uh, I mean, I've said for years that we as a community need to police ourselves. Mm-hmm. before someone else comes in and polices it for us and unfortunately we've failed to do that sufficiently and now as I say the government are going to sort of make changes or implement changes now what they will be I do not know um, but I'm firm I mean, again I don't wish to sort of disparage anybody but for example we've all seen the keepers that have a 15 foot Burmese python or a 18 foot reticulated python in a little box Mm-hmm. Now, if you're Joe Public, seeing a picture of that, how can you justify that 
to somebody else and say, oh, this is ethical and we're doing the absolute best for this animal. Um, or if you go to shows, again, you see animals cramped in little containers. Now, to Joe Public, that seems really cruel. Okay, they're only kept in those small containers for a, a small period of time. And when people get them home, they're going to be released, hopefully, into a larger environment. But I think, again, I can only speak for the UK. I think we've scored hundreds of own goals uh, because we've we've literally shot ourselves in the foot. Um, again, I don't know whether it's true, but you, you know yourself, you have animals dumped in the local woods and it's blazing across the newspapers that massive snake that's two feet long eats a child or has got big fangs or whatever. And that the press love those sensational articles and things. And as I say, I think if it's been genuinely a private individual that's released them, um, then that is, is a huge own goal. Uh, I have my suspicions whether maybe some of the animal rights groups have deliberately released animals just so they can get that sensationalism. Um, you always, Again, you always see these animal rights groups pop up as soon as an animal escapes from a zoo. Mm -hmm. um, they always make a make an appearance and say about how barbaric it is to keep animals in captivity. Um, but yeah, I think, as I say, as far as, certainly as far as Scotland's concerned, I think change is coming uh, to what extent. I don't know. I, th I think from what I've heard, it could be a traffic light system whereby animals that are on the red list are not able to be kept. Animals on the amber system can be kept with a certain degree of experience. And then green species, literally everything else. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you know yourself, you can literally walk into a pet shop, buy an or not even a pet shop, a breeder, buy an animal with very little experience very little knowledge and then you buy a small snake that size and when it's that size it's quite defensive so it, it maybe bites the owner so you keep feeding it and it keeps growing and before you know it you've got a maybe eight ten foot long snake you've never ever handled because you're scared from it and then you've got that as i say eight foot nine foot long snake that's aggressive uh, or not even aggressive fearful of the owner mm -hmm. and the owner doesn't have the experience to handle it and then that animal gets dumped or it bites somebody and then as I say, it's all, so I think as I say, change will come. And I think yeah. we've only got to blame, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, I think you phrased it perfectly. We score a lot of own goals. We we do not help ourselves out in a lot of cases. And it is, you know, just a couple of weeks ago in my city, I, I doubt this was a deliberate release. This is probably an accidental release, but we had all of a sudden on the news, they said there's an eight foot white snake roaming the city. And I thought, there's just no way. There's just no way there's an eight-foot white snake. Like, what would that be? Some sort of white reticulated python? I don't know anybody who owns that. And then they did end up finding it. It was like a three-and-a-half-foot, like, albino corn snake. And it was just, and, you know, luckily the city sort of embraced it and whatnot. But it, those type of stories really do get blown up in the media. And I, I think what you're saying is, you know, when you when you present to the government, this is the value we present. The, the animal rights groups don't realize what they're getting rid of if they were to just cut it off like i don't even think you, you could ask them if you okay let's say tomorrow we get rid of all exotic pets what other what is the collateral damage and i don't think they would even be able to answer that question because they're so concerned about just getting rid of them completely they've never looked at the damage that it might create so we need people communicating with the government to say look at all the positive that comes from this because there is positive and it's not just sh selfish keeping there's more things that we can do but it goes back to that professionalism. Like we, we can't keep a 15 foot 
Burmese python in an eight foot enclosure and expect the public or the government to buy that. You know, you could try to say that that's all they need, but anybody that looks at that is going to go, you're trying to trick me or something. So how, how did the government respond to you? Were they pretty open to what you, your suggestion? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I think they realized themselves very quickly that although initially it, it sounds like a great idea, and I think even from my perspective, if the animal's welfare is at the heart of any decision-making, I think that can only be a good thing. Mm-hmm. But I think when you actually do a bit of a deep dive and actually decide, well, actually, if we ban this or ban that, what other implications is it going to have? Uh, I think once they actually realised that, they were really quite receptive to actually invite me along to the, the sort of parliament and sort of speaking to the MSPs and stuff like that, uh, other people that maybe had their own input, etc. Um, and... I hope to go back again in future. I mean, again, if I can provide them with information that they maybe hadn't thought of or provide my own perspective on things that maybe helps things uh, going forward in the future, again, I don't mind doing that. Um, But yeah, I think it's it's quite, it's going to be quite a a tough couple of months. You're saying about obviously restricting the keeping of animals. For a lot of people, their animals are their life. Mm-hmm. That, okay, they're maybe not companion animals as in the, the atypical sense of companion animals, but for some people, maybe certainly through the last 18 months or so, their animals have become their life. And although, as I say, you don't maybe necessarily sit and rub your iguana or something like that, there is maybe people that do that. And that for them is their escape from reality. Uh, I mean, how many times have you heard maybe young children maybe being bullied at school and the only respite they get is when they're in interacting with their animals and again when you actually look at it from that perspective to simply say look we're going to ban them all together you could be creating problems even out with the hobby yeah yeah there are benefits to keeping reptiles that are you know conservation and captive breeding and all these things but one of them and i always say this one of the most important benefits is the benefit to the keeper and there's a responsibility that you get as a keeper to care for these animals. And if, if keeping reptiles makes you a better person, it allows you to manage your depression or anxiety or any mental health issues, that is a, a benefit to the society. It's not just a benefit to the individual. It's a benefit to the society as a whole because that individual is now not darker than they would be if they couldn't. And that lifts everybody. So it, it is so important. And I actually don't mind the traffic light system. I think I was just talking about this the other day. I think in Canada, we for our firearms policies, we have sort of our prohibited list of weapons that people can't buy or guns that people can't buy. And then we have restricted guns. And those guns, you need to have a special course and go through all this extra stuff. And then you sort of have your non-restricted. You still need a course for that, but they're you know just your sort of hunting rifles and whatnot. And I think with reptiles, we could do something almost similar where you maybe have a restricted list, your big constrictors, your venomous, your huge monitor species, where maybe those require a license or a training course or something to make the barrier of entry more difficult than walking past a reticulated table or a, a reticulated python at an expo table and just buying it. Maybe we could lump those in and then the, the sort of the green or the, the non-restricted animals can just be whatever you want. I mean, even as a keeper, I think to have some barrier of entry is not a bad thing because it would help us avoid some of those, you know, 15 foot Burmese Python in a small enclosure scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think as well, um, there are more, there are certain animals that are more suited to captivity than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, for example, people that buy the little Sulcata tortoises that are tiny, not maybe fully appreciate the fact they're going to get huge when they're big. 
Um, I mean, one of the things I'd propose as a personal sort of from my own experience to the Scottish government, and some people may agree with it, some people may not. And to be honest, I don't care. It's my own opinion. Mm -hmm. If they wanted to put an input into it, it was in their gift to do that. Uh, one of the things I'd suggested was for private individuals to have a, a limit of a certain number of females. So say Royal Pythons, for example, a private individual could only have 10 breeding females for any one season. And that helps to justify the fact they are a private keeper. If you want any more than 10 females, then you have to apply for a license and be a, a proper business and declare tax and all, all that sort of thing that goes along with a commercial scale. Um, I mean, again, it, I think 10 breeding females, again, like, I'm using the, the Royal Python as an example, but if you've got 10 females and say eight of them produce six eggs, that's still a lot of babies you've got to accommodate every year. You've got to find good homes for uh, all that sort of thing. Whereas if, as I say, there was a limit to private individuals, I think that would, from an animal welfare point of view, from a, animals getting dumped at rescues, all that sort of thing, I think would be beneficial. And it would also help the actual individual as well, because I, I don't understand how someone can be selective when it comes to breeding if they've got a thousand animals. That to me is not, that's not, that's not selective. To me, if you've got maybe a core few animals, that's selective. Mm -hmm. um, again, people may agree with that limit of 10 females. And obviously that doesn't apply to necessarily every female because obviously 10 Burmese python females, you could have upward of maybe 500 eggs or 500 babies. Yeah, yeah. So you'd have to look at it maybe on sort of grouping type things. So maybe some of the larger constrictors would maybe be in the amber list, for example, that you'd have to show that you had some degree of knowledge and expertise to house that animal. Um, but again, as I say, I don't know what will be taken forward, what will be implemented Um it's just unknown at the moment, unfortunately. But as I say, I do think certainly if restrictions come into place, I think to a degree we only have ourselves to blame. Um, and I know yeah. there's obviously the US ARC equivalent happening in the UK as well, but unfortunately sometimes the internal politics of the hobby kind of get in the way and we're not as organised as we maybe could be if we were all singing from the same hymn sheet. Yes, because sometimes what happens is we're more concerned about the opportunity to keep the reptiles rather than also talking about welfare. I mean, sometimes that's what those organizations end up focusing on, just the right to keep, when really it's a privilege to keep these animals, rather than saying, hey, we're also going to make sure that we're striving for higher welfare standards. And yeah, I actually don't mind that female idea because that way if somebody is serious and they want to do something, then they go through the proper procedure and they do the paperwork and maybe they get their license or whatever that is. It doesn't, because I don't love the idea of having a prohibited list necessarily where you just cross everything off. Like one, one of the scenarios that is being talked about, you know, in Canada is having a positive list, which I don't like the idea of a positive list because it's just too restrictive. And it's very, as a government agent, that would be a total nightmare to police because you're con you know, re reclassifications and new species discovered. It just doesn't make sense. But if you have an option for people to, if you wanted to keep reticulate pythons, if you were a big facility and you had the space, go through the process of showing that you're serious about it. That I have, I don't have an issue with. So I think you're right. If if, if regulations do come down, it, it really is up to us. We moved a little bit too slow, but hopefully we can still show that we have value and, we, and we're here to add value to the society, not just to our own personal lives. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, as I say, not that we have to justify keeping animals in captivity, but like you say, it is a privilege 
it's not something that everybody should be allowed to do. Uh, you should certainly have to attain a certain standard uh, and prove that you're not going to keep it in a shoebox or you're, you, you know that a certain animal requires a certain UV or temperature or whatever. Um, I think that could only be a good thing. Um, I, I don't, I'm not for more licensing or more legislation and things like that, but I think very much that because we've not done it ourselves, we've not policed it ourselves, I think it's inevitable that someone else comes in and does it for us. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you'd also mentioned that you you work with them as a that crime unit. Can you just quickly describe what that is? Because that sounds pretty interesting. Um, it's basically a board whereby um, there's an, an annual get together a couple of times annually. And again, my involvement really is predominantly with the sun gazer and within with sort of endangered species and stuff like that. Um, it's all done sort of remotely uh, by teams or zoom or whatever um but it's really just to make sure that it's also to do with uh native wildlife crime as well like sort of the toads and amphibians that we've got in scotland here making sure that there's planning permission in place if they want to um build on certain land and stuff like that so it's really and again this has all been done just through me having we've got a saying in scotland saying nay cheat nay chance if you don't ask you're never going to get So I don't mind emailing these people and they might never reply to me, but they might actually say, well, hold on, you've come to us with a decent proposal or you've maybe got a wee bit more experience than we do. Come along and let us know. And that's really how I've got involved with many of the, the organisations that I'm part of, just by simply having that that brass neck of actually approaching them in the first place. And as I say, I would encourage anybody, don't be afraid of rejection. As I say, the worst they can say is, no, we don't need your help, thanks very much. Mm-hmm. But at least you've made that approach to the, the government or the organization or whatever and as you might you might get a pleasant surprise you might say well hold on come and give us your expertise or let us know what your opinion is uh, and as i say very quickly you then become known as so then you get involved with that and then you get involved with something else and sometimes it gets you get involved with so many different things you don't actually have uh, enough time on your hand to do normal things <laughs> well i think there's two really important things there that you said the first is you can be proactive with this. You don't have to wait for the threats of regulations to come down. You can reach out to the government officials right now. And then the second thing is, like you said, I think a lot of times, I mean, almost all times, the government officials have no idea about reptiles at all. It's a complete, it would be like me trying to talk about, I don't know, something, not plants. I know a little bit about plants, but just, you know, some, some random topic that I have no clue about. It'd be so difficult to regulate something that you have absolutely no context in. So they quite often I imagine are actually very appreciative when someone who's in that community reaches out and says, Hey, I'm willing to help you guys use my own time to help you understand what you're trying to do. And that's why when you read government legislation, sometimes around reptiles, it's just goofy because they just say stuff and you can tell the person that wrote this literally has no clue what they're talking about. Cause they're just like no venomous, no constrictors. Like we, the province next to us has the, their laws allow you to keep an alligator but not a Kenyan sand boa you know like they just totally botched it completely because they don't know enough about what they're talking about to do it so I imagine that a lot of times they're actually really grateful for people reaching out yeah I mean I think again in the UK if you want to apply for a pet shop license you've got to get it from your local council and things some councils are adamant that every animal must have water available to at all times now the wide-mouth agamas would never encounter standing water in the wild, but 
I make sure that they get a spray every every second day. I make sure that obviously there's a, an area of sand that's always moist. So if someone was to come to me and say, look, you're keeping that incorrectly, first question I'd ask is, well, have you actually kept them yourself? Because if you haven't, you don't then have the authority, I suppose you could say, to actually tell me how to keep them. Mm-hmm. But by rights, they should have water all the time. Uh, again, with the Egyptian tortoises, they should have water all the time. Uh, whereas I actually give them a, a, a bowl of water only every couple of days. Uh, otherwise, I spray down the enclosure and you can see them drinking the droplets of water that form on the, the grass. So they're still obtaining water and they're still fully hydrated, but they don't have standing water, which, as I say, by rights they should have if you're going by the letter of the law. Right. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Well, I think we've really covered a lot of topics here. Is there anything that we've missed that you wanted to mention before we start to wrap up? No, I mean, probably as soon as we finish the meeting, probably 101 things I thought I should have said that. Or yeah. I did have some notes here, but yeah, they actually notes. fell off quite fair, fairly early on, so I've probably forgotten a lot of things that I was going to say. <laughs> um, no, no. Yeah, good. I mean, we, we'll, we'll, I think we'll leave another episode on the table as well because I know you have lots more in your head probably. So uh, I really appreciate this, Fraser. This was a great conversation. We covered a whole bunch of different topics and I think that makes for an exciting episode. Can you let everybody know where they can find you online or more information about yourself? Uh, well, I did have the Smog Gigantius website, but um, just through financial restrictions, I let that fall by the wayside. Um So you used to be able to get me via that. But the best way to get in contact with me now is via my Facebook page. So just Fraser Gilchrist um, on Facebook. And as I say, I don't mind speaking to anybody if they've got a comment, positive or negative. I've got thick skin so I can take it. Awesome. And I'll make sure that's in the show notes for everybody so they can find you on Facebook. Fraser, thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you spending the time here with me this afternoon. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you very much. So one real quick thing I wanted to mention before we wrap up the episode, if you are interested in helping Fraser with the Save Our Sun Gazer initiative, whether or not you're an individual or a company or a reptile manufacturer of some sort, if you want to get involved with firing that initiative back up, then let Fraser know. His contact information for his Facebook is in the description on YouTube as well as in the show notes. Right now, funding is what's needed to help continue that project forward, whether that's educating the children in South Africa or even just getting the site back up and running. Of course, all these things are very expensive to run and for it all to fall on just one person, Frazier, it is really a lot. He's done so much for this species already. So if you're somebody that wants to jump in and you you have an eagerness to help, let him know. He would be incredibly grateful and I would love to see that as well if if we could find one of the listeners who who has a, a passion or an interest in that species and wants to get involved on the ground floor this is your opportunity. So again, contact Frazier. His Facebook contact is in the YouTube description as well as in the show notes. And if you don't have Facebook and you want to get in contact with them in another way, just email me and I'll make sure those that connection can be made. All right, that is the end of this week's episode. Frazier, thank you so much for joining me. That was a fantastic conversation. I know you have at least a couple more episodes in you. So as I said, off air after we recorded, we'll definitely have you back on and we'll do a couple more episodes because I think there's a few other paths we could walk down with you as well. But for now, thank you so much for joining me. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. I hope you did enjoy the podcast. If you are watching it on YouTube, make sure you leave a comment so you can let us know if you enjoyed it. If you are listening to it on any other platform, thank you so much for doing that. Sharing on Instagram or Facebook is one of the best things you guys can 
can do to help grow the show. Every time somebody shares the podcast, it usually picks up another listener or two and that grows sort of compoundly. So thank you so much if you do that and thank you if you do that in advance. And if you are interested in supporting the podcast in other ways, you can head to patreon.com slash animals at home. There you can join our Patreon community or support the show's sponsor, customreptilehabitats.com. There's affiliate links in both the show notes as well as the YouTube description. And as I said at the beginning, that is an affiliate link. So if you make a purchase, a small commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you. And of course, that helps me support the show. And as one more reminder, head to animalsathomenetwork.com if you're looking for more information on this episode or any other episode that has been recorded on the network. That is it for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in and I will see you next Sunday.